Hey, you know what I learned, though, mm-hmm. is that in the follicular phase, which is the like three to eight days after your cycle ends, because oh. you have like four cycles within your actual menstrual cycle. And I menstruation did not know is just one of them. This is fascinating, Jesse. Yes. The follicular stage. Thank you, TikTok. I have to say they're teaching me the children are teaching me so much. Uh, but the follicular stage is when you are actually the most likely to be absorbing new information. So if you want to learn a new skill or be extra productive, those days like three to eight after your menstrual cycle is the best time to do that. You're informing me of this when I'm closer to menopause than I <laughs> Right? It's like, ah, oh, dang I've it. lost so much time, Jesse. Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. We were a super soaker family. But also, it's setting up some stuff for season three. (laughs) Do we like being on the air? Yes, we do. I am a card-carrying member of the Back to the Future fan club, Jesse. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 19, Bad Girls. I want to sing the song, Jesse, and... Me too! I mean, listen, if, if, if someone is listening to... Beep, beep. Episode season two, 19 of our podcast, looking for us to sue. Maybe that's probably not going to happen. Now is the time that we can throw in the clips and the the music and not get in trouble because no one will know. Yes. It's finally happening. (laughs) Oh, we waited it out, guys. We made it. We figured out Warner Brothers. Uh, As... as if Warner Brothers is not going to go up against people because of music rights, I'm not going to go up against people because of music rights. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome. And uh, we are here for another episode directed by Barnett Kelman. Beep, beep. I'm beep, beep. say that at the end of it. Beep, beep. Yeah. So this episode aired February 19th, 1990. We are still in sweeps, as Miles mentions in the episode. Uh, yes. And it's written by Gary Donzing and Stephen Peterman, friends of the pod. We do adore them. There was a quote that I found recently um, around this time period that Candace gave, which I thought was really interesting, sort of about doing sitcoms to her and that being on the show was like going on a five-year blind date that just before the doorbell rings, you wonder, what have I done? And then it turns out to be Mr. Right. No. Oh. Which is really sort of lovely that she still, you know, gets a little nervous every time she gets a script, but... It's always great. (laughs) That just makes me swoon. I think a lot of times what I'm trying to describe to people what it's like to be in in the industry, Mm. as we call it, uh, sometimes the the dry version of what she says here is, you know, it's, you all know what it's like to go in a job interview. Well, we do that multiple times a week, if not multiple times a day. It's just constant job interviews. And it's less like you find one and you stay there. But this is a very romantic way of looking at it, which is that you're just you're going out on dates and you're just seeing who fits and you just you you become you, you become a professional dater and you're just looking for that yeah. connection. Because it's not like a movie where like you have the whole script mm-hmm. and then, you know, or even, you know, nowadays a lot of shows do write the whole season in advance, which is really more mm-hmm. around this time period what I would have referred to as like the British way of doing things where they would yes. write the whole season, film the whole season, and then that would be it. Also, they would have less less episodes, which again is now happening with streaming um, mm-hmm. or is happening. I mean, really, we're there. Um, but thinking of going back during this time, that didn't happen. So mm-hmm. particularly on a sitcom, you know, <laughs> you're going to get something new every day. The next week could be a clunker and you don't yeah. know. I'm very intrigued to um, something I would love to 
pick the brains of especially writers' rooms uh, who have been both back in in this era of the writer's room Mm -hmm. and responding to ratings and now with the immediate response and Mm, still being in the process of the turnover of fan response. Because oftentimes if you had an issue with the way a character was or so on, you wouldn't really see that change from the writer's room until maybe the next season. Because a lot of times the the responses were a little bit slower. Yeah, absolutely. As far as, but now when you have Twitter blow up after one episode, we'll see a turnaround within an episode or two of a potential problematic issue or a change in response or a a relationship that's taking off in the show that then they're like, oh, let us look into this now. Yeah, no. And I'm very intrigued to feel, you know, we we hear about that when it comes to news, like the 24-hour news cycle and now the, you know, like two-hour news cycle and how quickly those things have had to change. All right. So the song is uh, I Heard It Through the Grapevine. By Marvin Gaye. Love, love, love. Love, love, love this version. And would you say for you, would this be like the signature version when you think of all the versions? Okay, I think so too. Yeah, like for this song, it's Marvin Gaye. For Mustang Sally, it's from The Commitments. Like there are very specific versions. This is the version. Okay. Now what's interesting is that this is one of those songs that Motown just had many, many different people record. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, which seemed to be a thing for them. So this was the number one hit December 14th, 1968, and it stayed number one for seven weeks. Dang. It sat on a shelf for two years. <gasps> what? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, How do you shelve that? Uh, Barry Gordy. Barry. Barry. Brett Strong was known for Motown's first hit, Money, That's What I Want. From 1959, mm-hmm. I believe we have referenced that before. We sure um, have. He came up with the idea. It was his song. He was walking down Michigan Avenue in Chicago. Hey, I know. That's a magnificent mile. Ah, in 1966. Uh, this is the second song that we've talked about where someone came up with the idea just walking down a big city street. Tanya, artists are geniuses. Anytime, any place. Mm-hmm. Ain't no man high enough. So he turned the song in. Him and Norman Whitfield worked on it, who's a Motown producer. Um, they sort of, sort of fleshed it out together. And then the song was recorded recorded in the summer of 1966 by Smokey Robinson in the Miracles, but their version wasn't even released. Oh. Then, early the next year, uh, Gay recorded a new arrangement, but again, wasn't released. What the heck? Barry Gordy is a very specific human being. That tracks. We've talked about this before. He knows what he wants. And you know what? I think I understand it. This is a black-owned company that Mm -hmm. is new. It is not the Motown that we know. Yeah. He wants to curate probably every single specific release on purpose. Yeah. And they don't have, I mean, when you are someone who's been marginalized, you only have so many opportunities to be taken seriously and given a chance. So I'm sure he didn't, he was waiting for the one that he was going to, you know, bet his horses on essentially. When I found out this history, I was like, this is so interesting. I knew I was going to come across all these different versions. I didn't mm-hmm. realize how a specific a story this was going to be. Then Woodfield, as the producer, then turned to Gladys Knight and the Pips. Oh. And that is a different version, right? That one is a little, been described as sort of more Southern soul. Uh, sure. It was, it was also a big hit. Eventually, The Temptations also recorded the song. Supposedly, the Isley Brothers may have recorded it. And that also never was, uh, was released. So eventually, uh, Marvin Gaye's rendition of I Heard It's the Grapevine was released in the spring of 1967. 
He wanted to release it as a single, and so did the producer Whitfield, but Gordy again rejected it. Later on, Gordy said that he liked the song, but he felt that it didn't fit the smooth, romantic image that he was trying to craft for Gay. See, that's really interesting too, oh, right? Oh, the branding of the artist. Which is something that, wow. that Marvin Gaye was trying to get out of eventually, right? When we talked uh -huh. about what's going on. Also very interesting is that when it was given to Gladys Knight and the Pips, he particularly gave them that song to try to compete with Aretha Franklin. <laughs> Finally, when he was able to release the song, it was actually not a single. It was buried as a deep cut. Now, to remind everybody, which we've talked about before, singles were very specific. Not every song on an album became a single. Yep. And a single is what was going to be played on the radio, would probably be sold as a 45, and had a much better chance of, or any chance, of being number one because of the release, the way it was released. Well, and that's something that I think a lot of people, and I know we've talked about this before, but a lot mm -hmm. of uh, folks who are younger nowadays don't entirely realize is, like, I remember waiting for the EP to come out. And mm -hmm. like that was the modern version of when a single came out. Like, there was a very specific thing about, like, singles were released separately and then ended up being on the album as well. But they were often a precursor to test about sales for an album. I mean, they do drop singles now and like Spotify and that kind of stuff, but it's very different. It's Oh, it's so different. Oh, it's so different now. So here's something else that would never happen again, which happened a lot to songs, was a DJ fell in love with the song on an album. Uh-huh. So E. Rodney Jones, a DJ at WVON in Chicago, Loved yeah, Gay's version of the song. It's such a, right? That's why I wanted you to hear it. It's such a Chicago story. Mm. E. Rodney Jones, a DJ at WVON in Chicago, loved Gay's version of the song, and he started playing it. And so finally, because of the popularity of him playing it, Gordy finally let Gay release his grapevine as a single. And as I mentioned, it was seven weeks at number one. Dang. Eclipsing Gladys Knight and the Pips version. Um, it was Gay's first number one. Uh, and the biggest hit that Motown has ever released. Wow, that's a long journey to that. Yeah. Now, something interesting was that when this personally happened, many people say that it was a time, a very hard time in Marvin Gaye's life, that he has been described in articles that he was almost falling apart when Grape, Grapevine blew up. It was not a good time in his career. And it sent him into a deep depression, sort of wondering if he deserved the success. Oh, buddy. I know. Not to mention, at the time, Tammy Terrell was dying of a brain tumor. Yeah. Who was one of his deepest friends as well as his partner. So it was not a very good time in his life. People need to realize that imposter syndrome does not go away with success. After she, she died, you know, her illness really crushed Gay. And he actually considered quitting. But instead, he made What's Going On. Oh, man. Which, as we talked about in previous episodes, and I will put a link to that episode in the show notes for you. Yeah. Where we talked about what's going on and what a departure that was from his romantic mm -hmm. career that he was really pushing towards doing. Oh, that's such a nice payoff. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. Also, we can't not talk about the 90s or the late 80s and Murphy Brown and not talk about the fact that this song was used for the California Raisin Advisory Board. Yay! With a very famous claymation commercial for raisins. Oh, I love the California raisins. Guys, we talked about this, I think, in like our first episode, probably I our first so. couple episodes. <laughs> but you do not understand how popular these raisins were. You could buy them as figurines. Every I have them somewhere in storage. I'm sure they're worth my That's entire right. grad school I remember school this. Loans. You do have them. Mm -hmm. Listen to this. They were toys, lunchboxes, bedsheets, and a primetime TV special. A Nintendo game. I do not remember the Nintendo game. I do. Priority Records, a small L.A. indie, released a California Raisins album, which mm -hmm. sold 
This is from an article that said, it mm-hmm. literally said, ridiculous numbers. <laughs> Listen to this. Flush with California raisin money. Sorry, it's another quote from the article. I shouldn't say that. So then all the money that they got, this indie label Priority Records from uh, selling uh, California Raisins albums, signed NWA. Yes. Yes. That is a story of Marvin Gaye and I heard the grapevine with a little bit of the California Raisins. And Barry Gordy just focusing on getting the, the right thing out there. Yes, that and trying to get Diana Ross to sleep with him. Also that. Shall we start? Yes. So we open on, as we've discussed, Heard It Through the Grapevine. We're on a, a dark street. It feels a little film noir. We see a lamppost and leaning up against it is Frank. Undercover, reading a newspaper. So casual. Oh, yeah. No one's going to know. No, there's nothing happening here. Just a man leaning at night under a lamppost With reading a, trench a newspaper. Coat. <laughs> In a trench coat. Lots of trench coats. We see a single pair of red heels, legs, walking, cut back to Frank, who looks over his shoulder, goes to meet single pair of red heels in a short trench coat. <laughs> he meets a, what at first kind of looks like a brunette, is actually an auburn-headed woman. And receives a very sneaky looking handoff. It's very film noir. And then I wrote, and then because this is a comedy, it gets blown into the air by the wind and Frank has to chase it down the street like a dweeb. You know what I love? I love, which to me is so human, is when he's chasing after it and then he pauses for a second. Like you think it's going to just stop. Like, okay, I ready? Just, I literally wrote down, I appreciate that Frank does a thing we all do, which is stop and see if it will stay if you're not moving. Yeah. And then it just Like as if it's coming. alive. Like I'm not going to scare it. If I just stop moving, maybe it will st- it'll stop for a second. I, so yeah. I thought that was really great. And, you know, again, comedy uh, comes from recognition because we all know we've done that. It's that beautiful thing about like, no, just paying attention, doing those little things that actors do to research, which is like, what do I do if I'm chasing something that's been caught by the wind? Like, we don't actually think about that. And so we just behave as if. But the real thing is you do, you kind of just stop and go... there's like a weird standoff with the inanimate object. Uh, It reminds me of when uh, you just hit the elevator button, but it doesn't really do anything. But uh, they've they've researched that humans just like the fact that if they push something, they feel like they're they're Mm -hmm. doing something towards their goal. Progress. So we cut to the bullpen. Corky, Jim and Murphy are at the table. I wrote Corky and Jim are eating. Murphy is reading a newspaper. Miles is desperately checking his watch. As we come into the scene, Miles gives up and stands up and proclaims that clearly Frank doesn't think this meeting is important enough to attend. Here's the thing. They're journalists. Like, right. I think I think it's a power issue with Miles. I think he feels it like is. he's being disrespect, disrespected. Yeah. But like they, he knows that Frank's working on something. Um, But I guess it's not like he can text him and be like, I'm working on a story. I might be late to the meeting. Yes. For me, the background of this is one, you know, Miles don't get no respect Mm. um, and he's used to it. But this is the, I felt like this is Miles equivalent of when uh, Steve Carell in The Office says that you cheated on me when I specifically asked you not to. (laughs) Um, And it's like, this is like, because he's clearly told them like, this is a really important meeting. And he already clearly, as we're about to see, is prepared for all of them to shrug him off and ignore him and dismiss his concern. So the fact that Frank isn't there when he specifically told him it's important. Yeah. Even though the fact that we know that Frank is the investigative journalist, he's the one who's the most likely to be in the field because he's investigating. Exactly. (laughs) 
But he specifically asked him not to be investigating this morning. How dare you? How dare you, Frank? Miles says that he knows this isn't a popular subject, but just once... He's asking them, as highly skilled professionals, to hear him out before they react. Now, as you all know, the February sweeps period is here, and the network, and as he's in the middle of launching into, and what I like is he does this thing where it's clearly this, like, I'm just going to get this full sentence out before anyone can react to me. And before he can even get through the word network, Jim cuts him off by grabbing a section of newspaper and hiding behind it. He turns to Corky. Corky's checking her nails. Very funny. Very mature. And then he kind of rises a little bit. He's like, well, at least one of them understands the importance of this meeting. Thank you, Murphy. And Murphy is looking at him very seriously. Her newspaper has gone down. And then she pulls out a foam dart gun and shoots him. It's really fantastic and so mature of her. It's so mature. It's such great deadpan Candace Bergen. Also, is this the time of Nerf gun? Is that actually a small handheld Nerf gun or is this a different brand? I mean, I would hope it's a Nerf gun because it, that would hurt. It's Nerf-esque. Nerf-esque. I mean, it's, it's, it's a foam dart gun. Yeah, I mean... Um, but I, I wasn't sure about the maker model situation. You know, it's funny that you say that. We did. My parents really weren't big on the whole gun thing, even if they were yeah. fake. Yeah. Uh, maybe like a water pistol or something like that. And my, my neighbor had one. So like... We I, were a super soaker family. Yes. My neighbors mm-hmm. had super soakers. Those were fun. They probably had to put tape over it to see if it's a Nerf gun. But that 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 is my guess. Now, this reminds yeah. me of uh, those who know the show very well is that in season three, there is a huge like water gun fight at the beginning yes. of an episode, which apparently was based on real life. <laughs> I'm just guessing that this gun probably was around... Candace is a jokester. Yes. I have a feeling this is based on real life. <laughs> yes. And I love this this moment. Again, we talk a lot about the the relationship of Murphy and Miles. Can- the way Candace very dryly pulls out and shoots him, the way that Grant just stands there, takes it, and just kind of like closes his eyes and accepts the immaturity of these people disrespecting him yeah. and what matters is just chef's kiss. And he says, fine, fool around. But- Let Miles remind them that the ratings they get during sweeps determine their ad buys, which keeps them on the air. Do we like being on the air? Yes, we do. So let's accept reality. Or pretty soon the Japanese are going to own this place and someone named Yakutori is going to be giving the speech and he's not going to have my sense of humor. See, this is interesting because this is such a specific late 80s, early 90s kind of reference that I feel like people watching this now mm-hmm. might not understand much like the joke in back to the future yep which is what this reminds me of which is uh that tech you know tech was really being taken over by the japanese mm-hmm. which nobody yeah now no everyone be like did we have beef with japan like yeah and it's like no it's just recognize. that's what was happening this is yeah. not i don't think that this is not meant to be offensive at all this is about the fact that like all of the tech companies that are doing mm-hmm. well are Japanese. And if people don't remember the joke in Back to the Future is that mm-hmm. in the 50s, Doc is looking at the DeLorean to fix it. And he picks up some circuit or something and looks at it and goes, oh, or maybe, oh, wait, no, that's Back, I think that might be Back to the Future 3, actually. I'm not sure. I think it might be. Or I'm trying it, to remember now. Yeah. But anyway, in the trilogy. Yes, in the trilogy. It's been a while since I've seen my favorite trilogy. But I, I, I am a card-carrying member of the Back to the Future fan club, Jesse. That's right. Same here. <laughs> anyway, so he picks up the part and he goes, oh, I, I see why you had such a problem. This part is made in Japan. And, there, and that's supposed to be a big joke for the mm-hmm. audience that, like, we know that that means it's really good. Yeah. It's, yeah. This When I say beef, I don't mean, like, Cold War. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean more just, like, 
now I think a generation, if they were thinking about who we were competing with as far as like technological advances, everyone would assume the joke would be China. Good point. Yeah, that's right. But then it was Japan. And I grew up, you know, used to those jokes. Same. I also I also grew up with a you know, a, a golden age set of grandparents. And so a lot of Japanese jokes also came out of like World War II experience. That exactly. And I just I wanted to be clear that I don't believe that that is. No, all I don't think this, this joke was that. Yeah. Uh, but this I, was the fact that like things were being made in Japan and they are jokes in the same way that now we have jokes about being made in China. Yeah. And, and but also I think the fact that a little bit of a difference, too, is that a lot of these Japanese companies were becoming um, big conglomerates and buying out American companies. Yeah. But it was this this joke really struck me. And I mm -hmm. in the sense, because it is such of that time. Also, I want to just say, as we're talking about, also, gear, gird your loins, everyone, because Jesse's here to be the, like, uh, the woke in the room police today with this particular subject matter. <laughs> but but I just want to say that uh, I am here for the timely joke of Japan's uh, is rising in its conglomerates and it's going to buy us all out. I am not here for... Uh, jokes at a race's expense. Exactly. So, like, there, there's an ability to to poke fun at the fact that, like, we're in like a uh, a business competition with another country. It is not okay to uh, poke fun at the Japanese in a way that is uh, denigrating them. Yeah, and I feel like I wanted to point that out because, and I don't think they did that they in this know, episode. But I just want to say it's that it's one of the very few times watching this show that I feel like someone who wasn't alive in 1990 would will think be that's a little confused. Is. Yes, and I want to I I want to call out that this joke was not coming from a place of exactly uh, of attacking a race. It was coming from a, a commentary on the current society and the fear of some of these businesses that they were going to be bought out. Yeah, and and a great um, excuse for us to talk about the culture at the time, which is one thing yeah. you know you and I when we wanted to do this show, we didn't want it to just be us fangirling about Murphy Brown. Like we wanted to yeah. talk about important things. Mm -hmm. So. Murphy, like like most people, thinks that Miles is overreacting. Yes. She says that they've got good stories in the works and they don't want to dump them just because some network bozo is afraid of competition. Which, fair. And Corky agrees. She's not going to dump her story on the National Symphony. She spent three weeks learning to play the triangle and I want America to see it. Oh, that's something I learned in kindergarten. I love her. Oh. And Jim says... For once, why don't we give the viewing public a little credit? Which, as we were just saying, like, respect your audience, that they're intelligent. Except we start this process of Jim. This is the, the beginning of a, a downward spiral for apparently Jim has a bit of a kink. But also it's setting up some stuff for season three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he, he turns and he says, Miles, if you had a choice between our informative piece on the changing face of Eastern Europe, which I love coming after the last episode. Yeah. So Jim says, Miles, if you had a choice between our informative piece on the changing face of Eastern Europe, which I love this from the writers because two episodes ago, that's what Murphy was covering. Yeah. Was the Polish leader talking about the changing face of Eastern Europe or a titillating Sports Illustrated swimsuit special? Which would you watch? Miles looks like this hurts him. Yeah. <laughs> to, to consider and just says, we're dead. Miles is like the news equivalent of slings and arrows. He really is. If anyone doesn't watch that show, uh, highly recommend it. But it is about uh, commerce and art fighting against each other in a Shakespeare company in Canada. <laughs> well, luckily, in Miles' uh, morning, ding, the elevator opens and Frank lopes in. 
this long stride, almost jog. He's clearly excited. Guys, guys, you're not going to believe this. And Miles turns around in fury and says that they don't have time for his excuses. And if you think the Japanese are going to stand for this chronic tardiness, you're in for a big surprise. <laughs> Frank is confused. Yes, very confused. <laughs> but, he, but he rallies and he announces to the rest of the group that the story he's been working on about Paragon Oil uh, Jim remembers because uh, they're trying to get drilling rights in environmentally protected areas. Murphy chimes in that Frank should kiss it goodbye because the only way Miles is running a story about oil this month is if female wrestlers are covered in it. <laughs> Frank says, no, 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 he's serious. So some of the commissioners, the land commissioners who decide on the drilling rights are apparently having a little social gathering at the St. James Hotel this Friday. Everyone's like, so? He says, so? We're talking a private suite, expensive food, open bar. Oh, and one other thing, hookers, all courtesy of Paragon Oil. Everyone celebrate. Like, this is clearly a big scoop. Big scoop. We found it. The money is trying to buy out the land commissioners. But this sent me back to uh, when Murphy and Jake meet in the first season. Same. I mean, not meet, but like when we meet Jake in the first season, mm -hmm. which is like, we know this is something that's going to pique the interest. Yeah, bad oil people. Bad oil people. Environment. Come on. Where's my boy Jake? Uh, Miles has completely turned a corner. And he goes, life is amazing, isn't it? The day starts out badly. Then, from out of the blue, you hear the word hookers. And suddenly, nothing is the same. Now, I'm just going to... We're going to discuss this now. Let's do it. So, I could speak for an entire podcast episode on the uh, conversation of... Uh, destigmatizing sex work uh, and respecting sex workers and the danger in not respecting sex workers. Uh, I will I will slow my roll because y'all are here to talk about Murphy Brown, but we will have some links to some excellent articles and places where you can educate yourself on this topic. I highly recommend if you are somebody who has a negative knee-jerk reaction to the concept of decriminalizing sex work that you look inward as to why you are possibly against this, uh, where that comes from, I would recommend that you do some reading is what I would recommend before you jump to any conclusions. Ask yourself where those conclusions come from and why, and then uh, consider the larger ramifications. So one of my favorite things that, that I found is a, a Mike.com article from 2016, which are four feminist reasons why we need to support sex workers. One of their quotes is, as sex positive as our generation might be, the sex industry itself is still a contentious topic. Some feminists think sex, sex work objectifies women and is inherently exploitative, while others argue that sex work can be empowering. Uh, one of my favorite things that they talk about is that there is a growing conversation globally about the growing conversation around sex work, featuring the voices of sex workers fighting for decriminalization. Note, there is a legal distinction between legalization, which involves regulating where, when, and how prostitution can take place, mm -hmm. and decriminalization, which essentially eliminates all laws regarding sex work. Now, it's very complex, and there are a lot of race and gender issues at play. But here are some things to consider. One, Making sex work a crime further marginalizes women, women of color, and transgender women. Women make up more than two-thirds of the people arrested for prostitution every year, and the laws against it dis place a disproportionate burden on women of color and LGBTQ people who are often racially profiled, arrested, and even attacked or killed with impunity. Uh, something to consider is over time as we've, we look at famous serial killers like Jack the Ripper mm -hmm. and other places. If you're watching Netflix right now, they just uh, made a documentary called Ripper which is about the Yorkshire Ripper. 
Mm. uh, from the 70s, who was named after Jack the Ripper. One of the things you will see, and this happens all the time, is women who are, quote, in high-risk lifestyles, which is a phrase that they love to use about women in sex work, their murderers are rarely brought to justice the way a, quote-unquote, innocent is. Mm -hmm. There is a lot entrenched, uh, and this brings me to my second point, which is criminalizing sex work promotes a culture of victim-blaming and slut-shaming. That you, if you are in this world, you deserve what comes to you, and you are less likely to find justice if you are harmed. It makes you a, a subclass citizen. Even though sex workers are at an increased risk of being assaulted, their reports are frequently minimized or dismissed by law enforcement simply by virtue of their professions. I'm, I lose articulation when I talk about the fact that there is no world in which it is okay to imply that someone asked for something, mm-hmm. especially a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Third point is when selling sex is a crime, sex workers are especially vulnerable to police brutality. Mm -hmm. Just going to leave that there. Uh, Four, respecting an adult woman's right to make choices about her own body, including consenting to sex work, strikes at the heart of emancipation. Yeah, I think that also is the important thing for some people that they can't distinguish the difference. Like these are consenting adults. These are these are people who are choosing a profession that they are being paid for. There's a difference between choosing to be a sex worker and being kidnapped and sex trafficked. Absolutely. There are distinguished things and the law should be toward the illegal, not consenting adults. And obviously that is a blanket statement. There are so many nuances, Mm -hmm. but it is important to actually consider what you are against and what you are concerned about happening if something is decriminalized. Because we could launch into a lot of conversations about things that we're against, that we're against, uh, I hate that I have to say this phrase, legalizing homosexuality back in the day, which was like, oh, well, if it's legal for gays to get married, what's next? Bestiality. Ugh. Those concepts are so messed up. And the false equivalencies that are inherent in this idea, well, if blank happens, then blank is going to happen. I highly, highly recommend challenging yourself and looking inward as far as why you think xyz yeah particularly also because mm-hmm. these are the same arguments are now using against um trans men and women or mm-hmm. binary individuals and it's the same stupid story exactly and so i have a couple other things uh i'm always very fascinated about like the etymology of the phrases like hooker yeah 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 let's talk about and that. so on uh The etymology of hooker is, I mean, it's literally one who hooks. So it often used to be like a maker of hooks and an agricultural laborer (laughs) who used hooks, like a hooker. So TJ Hooker. You know, uh, the we they believe that it's first to have been used in North Carolina in 1845 in this context, uh, which was a letter. And it says, if he comes by way of Norfolk, he will find any number of pretty hookers in the brick row not far from the from French's hotel. Take my advice and touch nothing in the shape of a prostitute when you come through Raleigh, for in honest truth, the clap is there of luxuriant growth. Oh my God, I'm sorry. That is a fantastic sentence. That sentence (sighs) is incredible. Um, Now, one early theory traces it to Corlear's Hook, a section of New York City. Oh, that's super. I love stuff like that. That's really interesting. Right? Like the big apple, A resident of the Hook, i.e. a strumpet, a sailor's trull. Good Lord. So that reminds me of the, the Big Apple because apples were what uh, jazz musicians called all the different stops. So ev- yeah. every city was an apple, but this was the Big Apple. And then it just stuck. Uh-huh. No one else is yeah. called apples anymore. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So hookers also in the past been used to refer to thieves or pickpockets. The word is likely a reference to, to sex workers hooking or snaring clients. So that makes sense. Yeah. But it's a very interesting thing. Now, we have to get back to the episode. There are a lot of great 
articles. Uh, there's an article from uh, the Inquiries Journal that talks about a feminist argument on how sex work can benefit women want to link. Uh, there are also charities that support and defend uh, especially transgender and women of color sex workers who are the least likely to be defended. But I just want to leave us with uh, a few points from our beloved Ms. Magazine. Yes, please. This is from 2010. It's called How to Respect Sex Workers. I'm going to say the phrase highly recommend about 300 times today. You're welcome world. Uh, but I do. I highly recommend you come and read this full article because what they say after these points is very helpful. First and foremost, don't diminish or mock sex workers agency. Again, these are when I want to emphasize adults. That is who we're discussing. Adults who have made a choice. Respect their right to have a choice. No sex worker deserves to be demonized for asserting the nature of her own experiences is something they say. And I love that. Uh, number two, don't assume your problems with the sex industry are the industry's only problems. Mm, that's a good one. And uh, a sex worker and artist, Sadie Loon, said, stop punishing me just because you may not be able to imagine being me. Oh, that could, that is a universal sentence. Right? Go, Sadie. Uh, three, use language with care. Some escorts might refer to themselves as whores or call their friends hookers, but sex workers don't trust someone outside the industry who employs those words. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that anyway. I don't like those words. And as someone who is not a sex worker, I have no right to use those words about them. Uh, the term sex worker was conceived as a judgment neutral term and is usually a safe bet if you're unsure of what phrase would be most respectful. Hmm. Um, this is why I also uh, I dislike the term high risk industry or high risk lifestyle, because that that in itself is embedded with the idea of victim blaming. Of like, you chose to live in this high-risk lifestyle, so you are more likely. That's not okay. We should not expect that or put that baseline on someone. Um, and finally, educate yourself. If you're going to be vocal about a matter that affects countless people around the globe, inform yourself about it. Visit the blogs and websites of sex workers, activists, and allies, not just here in the U.S., but abroad as well. The, the process of destigmatizing sex work and bringing agency and respect to the, hum the individual human beings who work in this industry is global. It is so much more than your town, your county, your state, our country. It is so much bigger than that. And it's worthwhile before you jump on a judgment about someone and an entire industry, educate yourself because it is so much bigger than you. That's great, Jesse. That was wonderful. Thank you for bringing that. Thanks. I appreciate all of you. For sticking with me through that, I promise it's much shorter than I could have than I could have made it. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I will say that for me personally, and Lauren, this is not a way I'm not baiting you with this. Yeah, I will not be using the term hooker the rest of the episode. That's I will be using with the term me. sex worker, even when they potentially use it. If they if it's in a quote, I will use it. I personally will be using the term sex worker. That's fine with me. Now, obviously, Miles is very excited, but Frank points out a problem. They need firsthand evidence. He's got to get in that hotel. Paragon is smart and they've hired, they've got all their own employees as wait staff, bartenders, and so on. The only people they aren't staffing are the sex workers. Miles says, oh, they need a reporter who is willing to go undercover as a hooker. My, This is my favorite joke of the entire episode. Frank enthusiastically, yeah, oh, like this running joke is, I could do it, Miles. I could. It would be tricky, but it would be one of the high points of my career. He just loves doing that stuff. This is, I think, the most progressive joke in this entire episode is the fact that Frank so badly wants to go undercover as a sex worker. And he's like, he earnestly believes he could do it. Yeah. He is a good investigator. And I just love so much. He's like, I could do it. 
he wants to embody the character of a woman and be believable. I love it so much. It is like he is a true in this moment. He is all of us actors. He's like, I could do it. I could do it, Miles. And Miles tells tells him to give it up. If he gets one leg wax, the whole thing's blown. Miles says, no, we need a woman. We need Murphy. And Murphy's still sitting at the table. Everyone else has gotten up at this point to celebrate earlier. Murphy's still at the table. And Murphy's just sitting there with her her, uh, newspaper. And she says one of my favorite lines, which is, you need a lot of things, pal. That doesn't mean you're going to get them. It's the best. And and I have to say, as, as much as we are going to really talk about the truth of this episode in context of then, in context in now, there there is a voice in this that I feel mm-hmm. that if it wasn't let, this show was not led by a woman. And I don't necessarily mean Candace. I mean Diane. I mean Corby. Mm-hmm. That that you would have this point of view because. Throughout this episode, Murphy is very vocal about how this is wrong to be asked of her. Exactly. One of the things I appreciate, because one of one of my things that I'm like, Miles, is I am so grossed out by the fact that they are coercing their female colleagues Same. to do this thing that they are actively judging as subpar, high risk, and wrong. And they're actively coercing them to do it. But I feel like the show However, gets that. the Exactly. Yeah. And that's what the show is commenting on. And the women themselves are like, this is messed up. Like, I really appreciate that it's not that it is done. Like, I do not believe that the writers in this room think that that action is OK. They are putting this negative response from the male colleagues to comment on yeah. it. And I think that shows in the next scenes when you see what Murphy and Quirky are wearing and then they show up and they look like they're wearing Halloween costumes. All of exactly. the women there are dressed very tastefully. I love the detail of the fact that they get there and none of the sex workers are dressed like a stereotypical cartoon version of a sex worker. They're classy. They look like normal people. Their looks are not the Mm punchline. It's the the way that the men coach the women to dress. What the the punchline is this assumption of what a sex worker looks like at a party. This is where Jim really starts his downward spiral, which he comes around from the coffee stand where he had been and says he can't believe you would expect a reporter of Murphy's stature to dress up in stiletto heels, fishnet stockings, a skin tight leather skirt, one of those low cut sequin tops that slides off the shoulder. Would anyone like some coffee? And just darts away. Watching Charlie Kimbrough slowly like start to slump as he gets overwhelmed by the visual of this happening. And then when he says, would anyone like some coffee? He does this like hand punch into his own hand in this weird little snap out of it moment. It is, I love him so much. And Corky agrees. She says she thinks the whole idea is offensive and ridiculous. No one's going to be interested in a 40-year-old hooker. The look that Candace gives her is so amazing. And I I will try to screen cap it for all of you people on the social media. But any any time they mention her age and and Candace whips her head and looks at Corky, it makes me laugh so hard. And I feel like now that I'm older, it makes me laugh even more because she looks amazing. <laughs> she looks so good. Like there are moments with her later where she's in the full outfit, like where she's like leaning back like on the bed. And I'm just like, this yeah. woman is 
stunning. Like, she's ageless. Her face is perfect. Well, <laughs> even Steve, who wrote this episode, has told us on the pod yeah. before that the reason these jokes are funny, which there are so many jokes about how old Murphy is in this episode. Oh, yeah. He said, the only reason you can make jokes like that and make them funny is because Candace Bergen is a goddess. Yep. He, he didn't use that word. I'm using that yep. word. But she is beautiful. Yeah. So you can make jokes about her age because she doesn't look old. Exactly. That's why it works. So Miles says that, uh, you know what? Corky has a point. Maybe they should give it to Corky, <laughs> to which Faith does this like, me? And then they're debating. what, And this is the part we were talking about where the men are having this conversation as if it's a done deal, regardless of what they just get decide. And so he says, but Murphy is a more experienced reporter. Well, he's made a decision. He's going to send both of them. And I, I wrote, I was like, would he be able to make that assignment? That's the thing. He feels like he's forcing them. Yeah. So they both say no in response. And Frank excitedly chimes in from behind Miles that he'll do it. And then Miles does this thing, which is what why it works is because Miles is not a broed out misogynist. Mm -hmm. But if a broed out misogynist had done this, I would have been so angry. He circles behind them and puts one arm on either side of them. Ladies, may I point out a few things to you? Which only works because it's Miles. Mm -hmm. And also he's shorter than both of them. Yes. <laughs> so he just, he looks like, a, he looks so small and young. And he says, put aside for the moment that this is a humongous story sent from God so we may pulverize our competition. Let's not lose sight that petty greed is putting our precious environment in jeopardy. Corky looks a little bemused and Murphy is just staring him in the eyes while he talks. And he says, we can do something about that. We must do something about that. Corky hates to say it, but she thinks he's right. And Murphy turns to her and says, let's see if you feel that way when some guy hands you a can of Ready Whip. <laughs> and we cut to... We cut to Murphy's townhouse, where the ladies are dressed as we've referenced in what I would consider Halloween costumes, but... <laughs> which I'm going to talk about in a second, with the 80s saw as a sex worker. We'll have pictures, obviously, for you guys to reference to, but um, it's a lot of sequence. They're both wearing wigs. Uh, Murphy has sort of a pink and black leopard or animal print dress with this big belt. She has a, sort of a black spiky wig. And it really made me think, sort of looking at them, that, that this was a, a vision, even though played for comedy here, and again, mm -hmm contrast so that they are wrong about how women are dressing at yeah. this party that they're going to. It just reminded me how at such a very young age, because how young I was in the early 80s to late 80s, this idea was sort of drilled into my head. And I'm only going to talk specifically about comedies in the 80s, because obviously beforehand mm -hmm. we have ma uh, male sex workers like Midnight Cowboy in 1969 or Clute, right, which is more 70s, or even chi child sex workers in Taxi Driver, which seemed uh -huh. to be a bit of a fetish in the 70s and the early 80s, which I don't understand. Pretty Baby they is sure another were. example of that. Brooke Shields. And then the 80s, I would say, start starting with American Gigolo, which apparently Candace's mother is in, which I did not know. Yeah. yeah, I think I may have mentioned that before. But it reminded me of that I grew up with this image. There's a movie called Dr. Detroit, where all they do is wear sequins. Fran Drescher is actually in that, which we will reference mm -hmm. uh, a little bit later. Trading Places, Jamie Lee Curtis dresses very similar to Murphy and Corky in this episode. Played for laughs. I think the only one that I can think of that I actually saw recently and not as a child, funny enough, is um, Night Shift. Oh, yeah. yeah. But mm -hmm. a lot of these m comedies that I remember, I realize, also have... Someone where a man comes in and helps her away from her pimp, quote unquote, to make money for herself, 
which is mm-hmm. also what Night Shift does. But I would say Night Shift is a completely different thing. I remember going to a video store and seeing this uh, poster a VHS cover of a movie called Angel from 1984, which I had to look up. It's one of my first memories of going to a video store. It's a very small child. And mm-hmm. the posters divide in half. And one side is like a schoolgirl and like a little uh, skirt. And she's got her books and she looks all innocent. And then the other side is her dress for her night job as a sex worker. And these are images that even at a very young age, even though these were, I don't think this was a comedy, but for me, it was mostly these comedies I would watch on TV. I realized how this image was sort of drilled mm-hmm. into my head. Bachelor Party, um, I haven't seen in ages, but that's another example of a comedy with sex workers in the 80s. It became a bit of a punchline. And even though we're Mm -hmm. in 1990 now, this is sort of the tail end of that sort of punchline error of these sort of big outfits and costumes. And again, it is a comedy, you know, it's Mm -hmm. bright, but it just made me think about how these images at a very young age were extremely prevalent in my life. Night Court is another example of a comedy that had this exaggerated, flashy example. And another reason why I do love the fact that when they show up, they are wrong. Also, this is just a sidebar, but let's talk about the concept behind when women started not having a pimp and representing themselves with agency as sex Yes, workers. and that's why I thought it was interesting that when I thought about, mm-hmm. and again, this is not me like re-watching many of these movies, but mm-hmm. like Risky Business, 1983, right? Mm-hmm. He becomes their quote-unquote pimp. But like a lot of these stories are about men rescuing women from yep. the sex industry to be independent. Yep. I'm not so sure that that image at such a young age was... A positive thing for me. Yeah, I agree. If you haven't listened to our episode um, on It's How You Play the Game, this will really inform Miles' perspective about why he thinks having sex workers on the show would be big ratings. Yes. Because that is what was happening on a lot of these sort of trash TV television shows to get ratings, Mm -hmm. um, including Donahue, which I wouldn't necessarily call trash TV, but it was definitely on the line. Yeah. Join us next week for part two. One of the things I remember learning about when it comes to like the menopause thing is like, so there's a very good chance that your body will still have a follicular phase. It'll just Aww. be like a, a phantom follicular phase. Wow. I said that so you easily. Did. I sound like my articulation is so good I'm today. I'm so proud of you.